God, our Father, we praise You today. We honor You and we bless You, God. Lord, You're everything to us. And indeed, we just rejoice uh, that we're able to come to this place and worship You, to ascribe You the glory that is due Your name. Lord, we can offer up a sacrifice of praise that we can offer ourselves today and lend our ear and our heart that you might feed us with the bread of life. Lord, that you might wash our hearts and our minds with your holy word. And Father, that you might continue to conform us into the image of Jesus. Lord, we want to be like Jesus We want to be like you, Lord. And so we ask that you would prepare our hearts and strengthen us by your word. Strengthen our faith. Help us to grow in holiness and in love. God, that you would do your good work in us. Cause us, Lord, to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Cause us to esteem others more highly than ourselves. Oh, Lord, to worship you in all that we do and seek after your glory day by day. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place with all of your holy saints. And we thank you for the privilege of being called your sons and having our sins forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and all that you are to us. Because of Jesus' holy cross, we pray. Amen. Okay. So that brings us to uh, our study of 1 Thessalonians. We have made it to chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 is where we ended last week. And uh, you recall that... um, Paul is now um, discussing the fact that his heart was longing to return to the Thessalonian church that he had established and that it had been some short period of time that he was unable to return and go and see them. And in chapter 3, he begins discussing, actually at the end of chapter 2, he begins discussing his longing to see them and his concern for their faith. And he begins describing kind of how this process happened, whereby he wound up sending Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to check on the church there to see how they were doing. And, um, of course, as he's describing all of these things, we get to peer into his life and and his heart, and we get to see um, what was, in fact, happening um, in that whole situation, and it teaches us even more about where that church was at, what what had happened in their lives, what kind of progress they had made, and uh, of course then when Timothy actually makes it there successfully and uh, returns with a report, and the, the first part of chapter 3 is really about that whole discussion, and so um, Paul was talking about how his heart was so endeared to them 
uh, but that he had been hindered from returning to them. And, of course, this is because of the severe persecution that was taking place in many of the places where Paul was doing his ministry. And, uh, of course, Thessalonica was no... um, uh, no example of a nice place for Paul to be. They, in fact, the young church there was enduring severe persecution after the apostles had left them. And so you have these brand new baby Christians and they're just in a boiling pot of the fire of persecution. And so the apostles were greatly concerned and praying as Paul has expressed in these verses. And so he says in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and following, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. And so last week we talked at length about the fact that Christians are destined for persecution and that this comes about because of the nature of who we are and the nature of what we do in the world. Namely, we simply follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, we engender then the hatred of the world. And uh, he goes on and he writes in verse 4, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer pers- we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. And so, Paul says, you know, we were telling you this when we were with you in advance, that we, both the Thessalonians and Paul were going to suffer affliction because this is the nature of of Christian life, especially in the first century, especially at this time in the first century when persecution was on the rise. Not only had the Jerusalem church been greatly persecuted by the Jews, but now as Christianity was spreading into the Roman world, the Christians were under uh, uh, increasing persecution from the Gentile world. And, and not only that, but also from the Jews that were present in the Roman world. Of course, you know, it was a, an angry mob of Jews that ran Paul out of Thessalonica. However, these Thessalonians were being persecuted chiefly by their own countrymen, as it's uh, said here in, cha- in uh, chapter 2. So, <clears throat> as Paul was telling them in advance they were going to suffer affliction, he says, so it came to pass, as you know. And the idea of Christians being destined for persecution is something that's difficult for us American Christians to understand because we live in a country that has, to some degree, religious freedom. And that religious freedom has um, gone on for hundreds of years now. However, in recent days, it seems that religious freedom is being defined more narrowly And uh, it certainly seems that before long, us Christians are going to find ourselves on the periphery of that, if we haven't already. And indeed, those more zealous Christians are already 
enduring much persecution because they simply follow Christ. And I'll remind you of where we left off last week when Jesus, in John 15, taught us disciples, saying, in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And so let me just mention again, as I did last week, and move on, that if you follow Christ, you will be persecuted, period. And you may have already endured some level or degree of persecution. Of course, it comes in all different kinds of forms. And I suppose we could spend many weeks learning about it, learning things about persecution, how to respond to it, how to endure under it, all those kinds of things, because the Bible's full of good instruction on how to do those things. But nevertheless, it, it, it may be something as simple as being ostracized, which many times you don't even know you're being ostracized because you're a Christian. Well, let me tell you, it happens all the time. You wonder why some people are aloof from you? <laughs> well, wonder no longer. It's something you said. Or it's something you did, which is under their skin. Or it could be as severe as losing your head, which happens rather regularly. Right? I, I believe the statistic goes that there are more Christians who have died in the last 50 years under persecution than in the history of the world prior to that. That's a lot. And it tells us something of the generation in which we live. It also tells us how sheltered we still are in America because of the religious freedom that we have. Which religious freedom, as I mentioned, is under attack? I kind of wonder if there's much we can do to stem the tide. And at the same time, I wonder if that's something we really want to do. That is, stem the tide of religious persecution. As far as I'm concerned, the American church at times seems so complacent, watered down, and worldly that we could probably be strengthened immensely by persecution. Surely, if it comes, that will be God's good design. And surely we know for a fact it will come in increasing strength before the Lord returns. Amen? Amen. If you're not aware, there will be a tremendous apostasy in falling away from the faith just prior to the return of Christ. Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 states that very explicitly. There are other places where it's described in detail, 
Revelation 13 and into chapter 14, uh, we see again the great apostasy, the great falling away. So Christian persecution is a reality. And it was a reality for these Thessalonians. And Jesus taught it was a reality for everyone who followed him. He goes on here in verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Because it came to pass, and they were indeed suffering affliction, Paul was greatly concerned about the stability of their faith. This was tormenting him, being so far away, as he states, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. Here, see the primary concern Paul had in sending Timothy to visit, his great concern about your faith, and for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul says, when I could endure it no longer. And here he kind of expresses the torment that he was facing, having left this young church behind, knowing that they were in uh, uh, suffering much affliction and yet somewhat powerless to do much about it. And so as this went on and more time went on, Paul was enduring this lament he had that they were being tormented. I mean, think about what must have gone through his heart. He comes through this city. He gives these people the gospel they latch on to it, and because of it now, they're being severely persecuted. And he's not there to defend them. And so he must entrust them to God's good grace. Amen? What a strengthening and sanctifying effect that must have had on Paul. But he says here, I couldn't endure it any longer. And so I sent Timothy. Maybe Timothy can go in there with a little bit lower profile than me. Right? And uh, actually survive a visit. <laughs> so he sent Timothy. Well, this was his concern. He was greatly concerned about their faith, and he was greatly concerned that they might have fallen away. That, he says here, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, I wrote here at the bottom of page 31, to me, it seems a strange statement. Bearing in mind Paul's statement about their sure election and divine calling that he made, of course, back in chapter 1. But it is his design to strengthen and encourage their faith against the satanic attacks, not to give some teaching on final perseverance. So here Paul is not trying to discuss whether or not they could actually fall away. That's not his design at all. He's simply seeking to encourage them against the satanic attacks that they are enduring. And so he kind of presents it to them in a very clever way. And he says, if you fall away, if you cower to the fear, if, you, if the persecution drives you away from Christ, then you have succumbed to the tempter and fallen away from the faith. You would have given profession at first, but not endured and persevered till the end. Because it's only those who endure to the end who shall be saved. Amen? Those who are truly in Christ and born again by the Spirit of God, who are kept 
by the power of God until the salvation which is ready to be revealed, right? That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. <clears throat> so Paul's not giving a teaching on final perseverance. He's simply seeking to strengthen and encourage the faith uh, of these Thessalonians against this persecution. Of this statement, Calvin comments with keen insight. He says, By this term, he teaches us that temptations are always to be dreaded because it is the proper office of Satan to tempt. As, however, he never ceases to place ambushes for us on all sides and to lay snares for us all around, so we must be on our watch, eagerly taking heed. And now he says openly what in the outset he had avoided saying, as being too harsh, that he had felt concerned lest his labor should be in vain if, peradventure, Satan should prevail. And this he does, that they may be carefully upon their watch and may stir themselves up the more vigorously to resistance. And so Calvin's pointing out, Paul's intention is to stir up their hearts against the resistance that they are encountering. His design is to, to show them that the persecution comes from Satan. Satan is the origin. The spirit of Antichrist that is in the world is the origin of Christian persecution. Even though God is providentially in control over it, it emanates from the spirit of the Antichrist, which is in the unbelieving world. And, <clears throat> if you will, see here Paul's clever way of teaching the Thessalonians the origin of the afflictions they face and to encourage their resistance to Satan's deceptive efforts to discourage both new and old Christians alike. And you see, this is what persecution is designed to do. It's designed to discourage Christians, to take away their courage. Are you with me? And so instead, we Christians are to do what? To take courage. To be encouraged. Right? Even in the midst of much affliction and severe persecution. And in fact, this is what has happened in the history of the church. Amen? When the church is severely persecuted, the church grows. When the church is persecuted and pressed down, it seems to be the very catalyst of causing the faith to grow and flourish. Amen? Interesting how God's mysterious designs work in this world. Amen? Nevertheless, it's a fact. But you can consider even the very low level of persecution that you must be enduring as a Christian, whether it be ostracizing, or uh, I was talking to a brother last week who was telling me about losing business deals because he's just a Christian and professes to be a Christian. Um, many of you have experienced various different kinds of persecution in various different kinds of ways. But consider that Satan's design in this is to cause you to doubt your faith, to cause you to doubt God's uh, love and concern for you, to cause you to fear for your well-being, to discourage you, to take away your courage and boldness in the gospel, to take away your courage to bear the reproach of Christ, a reproach to which you were called to bear in the world. Amen? This is Satan's design, to depress you, 
to cause you depression and doubt and fear and discouragement when you're persecuted. But family, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Amen? Amen? It would seem to me that Christian maturity, one aspect of Christian maturity, is coming to recognize the privilege that we have to bear the reproach of Christ in the world. And even though we don't seek (laughs) to engender persecution, it nevertheless is something that comes to us as a fact when we begin to preach the gospel and speak about the glory of Christ. And so it seems to me, as Paul was telling these Thessalonians in advance that they were going to suffer affliction, that all of us Christians ought to know that the day will come, if it has not come already, when we're going to suffer affliction for the name of Christ. And when it happens, do not succumb to the attack of the enemy by being discouraged, by having your courage taken away, by doubting God's loving care for you, or by fearing those who kill the body. Amen? Instead, draw your hope and your encouragement from God in that day and in that hour. Amen? Well, he goes on in chapter 3, verse 6 and following, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. He says here, but now Timothy has come to us from you. Here we learn that Timothy did in fact make it to the Thessalonica, and also successfully returned to both Paul and Silas as he states, but now that Timothy has come to us from you. And so here we have a historical record that Timothy actually made a trip to Thessalonica and he returned to see both Paul and Silas. That's who the us is. And uh, here we see the wonderful news that caused the apostles great rejoicing, the fact that Timothy has brought us good news of your faith. God had kept these genuine Thessalonian converts firm in their faith, and the apostles get word that even persecutions have not deterred them from their trust in Christ. Now think about how this must have caused Paul great rejoicing. How here they are praying uh, night and day and being tormented, thinking what has happened, what has become of the church. And Timothy goes... And Timothy returns and he says, man, sit down. I got something to tell you, right? Not only have they stood firm, listen, they've been preaching the gospel in all of Macedonia and Achaia and in every other place. And he begins to give them astounding news of how the Thessalonians had flourished. And think about this, family. What a testimony to the glory of God's keeping power. It is in that church. That Paul could come through and give them just a few short weeks of discipleship and and yet that was enough for God to sustain their faith through the midst of all of this. 
Glorious thing. Glorious thing. I, I'm sure when we get to heaven, we're going to understand just what a testimony to God's glory this was. I think the more I think about it, the more I understand what a tremendous thing this was. And uh, it's, it's very encouraging to me. Um, and, of course, I, I wholeheartedly believe in the sovereignty of God. And I believe if God calls you, he's going to keep you. Absolutely. Period. That's the nature of Christian faith, which is very clear in the New Testament. But, but moreover, here we see a living example of it. Are you with me? I mean, I always often think about how much discipleship can you give brand new baby Christians in four weeks? You know, I think about that task and I think I'm woefully unequipped. <laughs> right? Uh, but nevertheless, it's a testimony to it's not about what the man does. It's all about what God does. Surely, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we believe salvation is all of God. Amen? From first to last. And, and uh, when, when God plants the seed of his word in the hearts of his people, he is the one that causes the growth and causes them to flourish. Amen? Regardless of what the circumstances in the world are around them. Here is a perfect example of that in this Thessalonian church. Nevertheless, Paul gets the news, Silas gets the news, and they are jumping for joy. God had kept them. More than this, the apostles were overjoyed at their love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Now this was even better news yet, if you will. It was icing on the cake, right? The cake being, well, the Thessalonians stood firm. They've stood strong in the Lord. But guess what? Not only that, they love us. They're longing to see us. Their hearts had been broken for us as well. This was, as I said, icing on the cake. Not only had they remained true to the faith with love, but they remembered, remembered the apostles fondly and with warm affection, longing to see us just as we also longed to see you. Now this was a tremendous testimony of the faithfulness and power of God, having kept this young church both strong in the faith toward God and sound in love toward men. It goes on in verse 7, and he says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Now, Paul is uh, in southern Greece, and uh, at this time, of course, he is still enduring affliction himself. <laughs> He's not having a, a really good time as he goes on preaching the gospel. He is enduring affliction and peril at every turn. And this is a very trying time for Paul. But here we learn, he says this, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. And even though they're still enduring persecution and affliction as they go on in their gospel ministry, when they get news like this, man, does it encourage them. Because it tells them, that the current ministry they're involved in, whereby they are suffering the current affliction, that God is in these people doing the same good work he was doing back there. And uh, if you will, this is tremendously encouraging news, and this is how they kind of express it. This was an occasion of great encouragement for Paul and Silas and Timothy. Having zealously prayed for them in much love and anguish, 
wondering how they had fared in the face of much affliction, the apostle speaks of their emotions. He says, For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. Even though the apostles themselves had been enduring much distress and affliction from their ongoing ministry in southern Greece, their hearts remained ever concerned about the Thessalonians and if they had stood the test of persecution. When they heard the good news of your faith and love, they rejoiced, saying, We were comforted about you through your faith. Paul and the apostles were comforted, knowing the Thessalonians had passed the test, and their great concern here had turned to comfort from God, having the wonderful news. And so he says that they were comforted through their faith when they heard that the Thessalonians had stood firm, trusting Christ that that brought them great comfort. The idea that the Thessalonians had stood brought the apostles comfort. Think about that. That's what Paul's expressing here. So much were they rejoicing with thanksgiving to God. Paul uses the figure of speech, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. There's a typo there in your handout on 32. That should be Lord, not the faith. But Paul is using this figure of speech. He's he's saying, for now we really live. Why do you really live, Paul? Because those Thessalonians stood firm. Because that little baby church survived. The devil had mounted everything he had against them. And guess what? He was defeated by the keeping power of God. And this, Paul says, he thanks God. Verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? These apostles are overjoyed. Here Paul means to say that the knowledge of the Thessalonians' faith and love causes them much joy, as if it were the most encouraging thing they could hear. He says, now we really live. Not only were they longing to see Paul with warm affection, but they were standing firm in the Lord. This is to say that their faith had fared well, and that they were persevering in trusting Christ for their righteousness and following him as their Lord. Remember what faith is, and remember what faith means. Are you with me? These Thessalonians had stood firm in the faith. You understand? They were trusting Christ. They were trusting Christ. They were living in repentance. So much so they were willing to give them their lives in sacrifice to spread the gospel. They had stood firm in the Lord. They were in the Lord, and He was in them. And this was a testimony to the fact that God had chosen these converts out of the darkness of this world and caused them to stand firm in the faith, even in the midst of much affliction. You see that? Family, this is a supernatural thing that God did in this church. When we see this, we ought to say, Man, The church is a living organism that is planted, watered, and grown by God. Are you with me? 
because there isn't any human reasoning for why this little baby church endured the way they did. And not only were they enduring, man, they were blossoming. They were flourishing. They were preaching the gospel everywhere, even though they were being beat up for it and having their property taken away and all kinds of things that they were enduring. You remember how, how Paul says that they, uh, uh, they were follow, following the example of the Jerusalem church who endured a very severe persecution. This was no little thing. This little baby church, man, they were thriving in the midst of terrible persecution. And uh, it's a glorious thing to see. I, I look at it and I think, how should we dare think for a minute that the church is the work of men? Are you with me? It's not. The church, the word church, means what? The called out ones. Who's the caller? God. God calls the church out. And he brings them into his kingdom. He brings them into his dominion, his rule, his reign. Are you with me? And once that happens, family, all the devils in hell can mount their attack. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? Though the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Amen? <clears throat> goes on in verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. He says, for what thanks can we render to God for you? Paul is overjoyed to the point that he can find no words or way to express the greatness of his happiness over this news, stating, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with, with which we rejoice before our God on your account? He has no words of gratitude to God that are equal to the joy that is in his heart. He is simply overjoyed. He's, he's, he's out of words. His joy is so full. He says, what can I say to God? How can I express this joy that's in my heart? Knowing what God has done among you. And notice that he puts the gratitude properly in its place. He's thankful to God for what happened with the Thessalonians. Right? Notice he's not patting them on the back. My, what strong people you are. You follow me? He's not in any way giving glory to men. But he's thanking God for what has taken place here. And that's where thanksgiving properly belongs, family. Amen? These Thessalonians only stood firm because of what God was doing in them and among them. And it is to God that Paul is thankful and to God that Paul is rendering his thanksgiving of which he has no words because he is so filled with joy over what is taking place. 
See here the apostle's heart toward these, his spiritual children, his true sons in the faith. What encouragement for Paul to continue on in ministry this must have been to him. In this he must have pondered how all the distress and affliction must have been worth it. Surely he was gladly giving his life to see people come to Christ, and this was the greatest news of encouragement he could have received. And so he says, now we really live. How can we thank God? Because we have so much joy over what has happened in your lives. This, you know, Paul was living in dangerous peril day by day to see people come to faith. And then when something like this happens, I'm thinking this must have encouraged him for many, many months to come. Who knows, maybe even in his dying day, he was thinking of the victory that God had wrought in the Thessalonian church. Still pressing on, even unto death. Verse 10, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now even though Timothy's gone, come back, Paul still wants to go. He still wants to see him. He's still longing to be with them. Here he expresses his strong desire again to go and to visit them and once again share the strong affection and love with which he longed to see them. So much was this the case that they night and day kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face, hoping that God would soon give them opportunity to visit once again. And here see the purpose of their desire to visit, to complete what is lacking in your faith. You know why Paul wanted to go back? Because the word of God was burning in his bones. And all he can think about is all the things he didn't teach him when he was there. (laughs) It's interesting. Paul is longing to go back to complete what is lacking in their faith. This was his great desire. He wanted to go back and build them up even stronger. He wanted to go back and build them up so, so that they would be complete and full, that they would have all of the riches that come from understanding the kingdom of God and the word of God. Amen? Paul looks back on a baby church. He says, their faith lacks. I want to go back. I want to teach them. I want to strengthen them in knowledge and in understanding. I want to encourage them and build them up and reprove them and see them stand firm in the Lord. This was his great desire. Paul was so zealous to teach them and give them everything they needed for life and for godliness. He wanted them to have the complete assurance of full understanding. He wrote in Colossians 2 verses 1 through 3 something about this as he was praying for the Colossian church, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think about how Paul speaks about knowledge and understanding here. He says that as he's praying for these Colossians that 
they will attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Think about what he's saying. That they are going to draw riches from having trust in understanding who Christ is and what Christ's kingdom is about. And when I think about this, I, it, it makes me think of Mary and Martha. And Martha, man, busy, busy. Busy Martha. Right? And, you know, Martha is a very loving, serving, godly woman who's busy cooking in the kitchen. Right? The only problem with Martha is she's a little jealous. What's she jealous of? Well, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus doing nothing. (laughs) Right? Except in the words of Jesus, Mary is doing the only important thing. Are you with me? And it causes me to think about how we go through our life busy, 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 man. We got so many things we got to put our hand to. Jesus says only one thing is important. You understand what that is? Sitting at the feet of the Master and letting Him speak His all-powerful Word into our ears and learning of Him and growing in relationship with Him and communing with Him. That's the one important thing. And see here, Paul, this is what Paul is saying, that they would attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. You know what he means? He means truly knowing Christ. He doesn't just mean knowing all the truths about Christ. That's not what he means by true knowledge. What he means is truly knowing Christ. He says that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you realize how wealthy we are? And I want to say, do you realize that all you need is contained in Christ, who is the Word of God? You know, you want, a, you want victory in your life? You're not going to have it disconnected from the Word of God. You, you want to live in joy and patience and kindness and love? You want to have full and abundant, overflowing, joyful life and existence? Let me tell you, the way it comes is through Christ and having relationship with Him through the Word of God. Those things come from Christ. And the only way you can get them is for you to personally go to Him seeking them. Ask and ye shall seek and you will right if you come to the Lord and say Lord give me joy what do you suppose you're going to get (laughs) the Bible she says (laughs) if you come to the Lord and you ask the Lord for his blessing I think of Jacob who had a hold of that angel he wasn't going to let that dude go until what He knew where his blessing had to come from. And he was willing to wrestle 
He wasn't going to let go. You with me? I wonder how earnestly we really long for the life, for the for all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. We're not even re- willing to spend any time in the Word of God. You want to know what life's all about? You Listen, you need divine wisdom. You want to know why people are suffering in the world? You need God's wisdom to understand. You want to know how you overcome the difficulties and the trials that you face in this world and how to live with joy and with love and with peace in your heart? It comes from knowing Christ and having an understanding of His purposes in your life. You were made by God and fashioned for God's purpose that you might glorify Him and proclaim His excellencies in this world. That's why you're a holy nation. That's why you're set apart, a people for God's own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. God gave you a mouth to chirp his praises like a little Tweety Bird does all day long, every day. Are you with me? <clears throat> but family, if, 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 we, if we don't come to understand that sitting at the feet of Jesus, that communing with him through the word of God by the Spirit is the way that that divine life comes to us. We cannot be, live disconnected from the word of God and think that somehow we're going to have victory. We can't think we can walk in ignorance and in worldly understanding and somehow make right choices. You need God's wisdom to make choices that you're making in this world. Amen? I'm looking for ways to articulate these verses in Colossians. I think it would take several weeks to really unpack those two verses. The idea is that there is tremendous wealth that comes from knowing and understanding Christ and his kingdom. This is the thing that Paul was longing to go back and see these Thessalonians for. He wanted to go back and complete what was lacking in their faith so that they would have everything they need for life and for godliness. Which I'll remind you in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, right? His divine power has granted to us everything we need for life and for godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Right? Through these, verse 4, He has given us His very great and precious promises that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. How do we, how do we partake of the divine nature? Through the great and precious promises of God. It's through the true knowledge of Christ that we have God's divine power that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Conversely, if you don't have the true knowledge of Christ, you don't have everything you need for life and godliness. You don't have everything you need to be like Christ if you don't have a true knowledge of Christ. Instead, what happens? You go through life miserable. Instead of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, instead of those things, you go through life in fear and doubt and anger and worry and depression and discord, struggling always and never seeming to get the victory. That only comes through a true knowledge of Christ. We attain to that through the great and precious promises of the Word. 
Amen? That's why blessed is the man who doesn't go where sinners go, say what sinners say, and do what sinners do, right? But his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates both day and night. He, that blessed man, who meditates on the word of God day and night, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season. And whatsoever he does, he prospers and his leaf does not wither. You with me? Why? Because day and night he's meditating. He's eating of the bread of life, Jesus, the living word. Amen? <clears throat> so then, sorry, back to these Thessalonians. I'm not sorry, but, but back to these Thessalonians. Though they had stood firm until this day, he realized that they had much to learn and much to be taught, as all Christians do. No matter how far we have come in the faith, we are still many miles from the goal of Christ's likeness. And because of this, we need to always keep in mind what is lacking in our faith and persevere unto the end when we shall be united to the Lord at his coming. And so I want to just ask you this question as we move on from this verse. Just think about the idea, complete what is lacking in their faith. Paul had something very objective in his mind when he thought about what was lacking in the faith of those Thessalonians. You with me? I guarantee you he could have made a list of all the things he wanted to go and teach him. So thinking about that, I'd like to ask you this question. Do you know what's lacking in your faith? Do you know what's lacking in your faith? When you find out, you'll have something to pursue. If you don't know, you need to begin looking and seeking to understand so that you can act more like Mary instead of more like Martha and do the one important thing. It just kind of makes me wonder at times what we think about the faith. What do we think about the knowledge of God? And, and, and so I so long for Christians to get away from this idea of coming and getting one cold snack a week and watching the spectator sport of Christianity and actually coming to live and walk in Christ and walk by the Spirit of God and live in the victory as a royal priest who God has called us to be in this world that we would truly be genuine Christians who live and thrive on the true vine and produce the fruit of God's Spirit in our life. Which family, I mean, church is important, but that's not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is being a temple in whom the living God dwells. And being a vine that produces the fruit of His Spirit in the world. So that your life becomes a testimony of his glorious character. We participate in the divine nature. We become like Christ. And so manifest the glory of God to those around us. That's the essence of Christianity. Which all comes to us through Christ. 
through the cross, by the Spirit. Amen? Okay, we'll end with this verse 11 here. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. You know what? I'm not going to end there. i got too much to say about that. So next week we'll pick up with uh, verses 11 through 13. Whether you were a good example to your kids of being in God's Word every day when they were in your house or are in your house now or in the past or not, today is a new day. Okay? And today is a day when you can pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and start doing the, the necessary thing that you need to do. Not out of duty. Okay? But His delight is in the law of the Lord. You understand? It's got to be the hunger of your heart to commune with God through the Word. And if it's not, go to God and ask for the hunger. He'll, he's the one who will give it to you. You with me? And I want to add just further. <clears throat> Even though my kids are grown, my youngest is 19. She still lives at home. But my other two are out of the house. Even now, even now, my example is living on and teaching them and instructing them every day. And even now, I still bring them to my house every Tuesday night, and I sit them all down around a table, and I open up the Bible, and I do the thing I should have done properly back when they were four and five and six and seven years old. I tried, but I was very inconsistent. To say the least, I have a lot of regrets about my disciple-making as a parent. Okay, But today's a new day. I'm not going to look back and dwell and be discouraged about what I did or didn't do. Okay? Today, I'm going to do the needful thing. Are you with me? And, and I'm telling you, it's having an impact. It's having an impact on my family. It's having an impact on my kids. And, and, uh, and I can see the fruit of that regular instruction in their life uh, week by week. Praise God that I have the privilege but all I'm trying to do is tell you, look, don't look back and say, well, I regret I blew this. My kids are grown up. Hey, good night. Today's a new day, man. You with me? God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. You believe that? And not only that, we may have lived as a complacent Christian all our life. But you know what? Tomorrow is a new day. And you don't have to be a complacent Christian tomorrow. Right? Amen. Amen. And so Terry is saying that it's God who's causing that growth. Amen. And that's why we want to do everything we can to complete what's lacking in their faith. You with me? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we see what you did in Thessalonica, and we are in awe. I pray that you would give us insight to this truth. That, Father, we would understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. That, God, it is in your hands. And Lord, I pray by this we would see the glory of your deliverance, even as the Israelites stood on the far side of the Red Sea and watched the Egyptians drown. I pray that we would stand in awe 
of how you have saved us and brought us through in the midst of unbelievable circumstances. That, Lord, you could even save a wretch like me. Father, we praise you and we glorify you. I pray that as we go through these verses, Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives, that our hearts would be hungry to know you more and more. We thank you for all of your goodness in our lives. We honor you and we praise you because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.